I was talking last time about the steps that Habakkuk would take if, if he were to seek God during difficulties. We talked about Habakkuk thinking. We talked about him going back to basic principles. We talked about, thirdly, that he would need to take those basic principles and apply them to the new scenario uh, that he's facing. <clears throat> and we were talking about that before we get to the fourth step, which is, if still struggling, speak to God in faith. So we're up to ch chapter 2, verse 12, which says, no, sorry, chapter 112, chapter 112, the second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Remember, that's where we left off. All right, so Habakkuk's still struggling. He's covered basic principles. He's reminded himself of how to apply those principles, and he's still struggling. What's the remaining struggle? The moral dimension of our good God using wicked people to punish his people, having Babylon come and attack. Isn't that wrong by nature? I mean, he's on to something here with covering basic principles, isn't it? Isn't this the same as God endorsing evil by using Babylon to spank his people? Isn't this God then becoming responsible for the actions of a scoffing army? Isn't this God condoning violence? Habakkuk was not yet settled about that aspect of this dynamic. So then we get to verse 13, where he starts to talk to God about God being too pure to see evil. But seeing evil is exactly what God is doing when Babylon attacks. So Habakkuk's still stuck intellectually. He's, he's trying to figure this, this out. The difficulty is connected to a basic principle, you see. He's gone back to basic principles. He's trying to figure out who God is and what God is doing and why God is doing it. It's because God would not tolerate wrong that the problem of God using Babylon, Babylonians remains a problem because they do what's wrong. So now what should Habakkuk do? What should he think? We, we caused him to think, go back to basic principles, apply the principles to the scenario, and he's still stuck. So now what? <clears throat> he still doesn't have the answer, so we go to the fourth and last step. If still struggling, speak to God in faith. So we can apply this to ourselves when we're stuck intellectually about how a good God could allow bad things to happen, which is the overarching question of this book. We commit our confusion to God in faith. We leave our unanswered questions in God's hands. That's where he arrives at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's taken all the right steps. I come back to who God has revealed himself to be. He's come as far as his reasoning and his correct beliefs can take him. He now needs to know more which is beyond him, if he's going to progress through this dilemma and figure it out. He has to wait, wait on God for instructions. What am I missing? How does this fit together? So that's a lesson for, for us to do. How, how do you do that? How do we leave our problems with, with God? One thing we learn from chapter 2, verse 1, is to detach ourselves from our problem. This is the tower he talks about, the, the watchtower, it's a place into which Habakkuk goes to look across the whole landscape. 
I want to back up from this and gain perspective. So I'm going into the tower to look at the whole scene. I want to look at the mountains. I want to look across the distant horizon. Now, we like to go shopping or hunting or to a cabin or on vacation or to the beach, right? Go up to a skyscraper in a building and look out across the busy, bustling city and just stand there for a minute contemplatively, right? We like these sort of moments. We're in a tower, as it were. You go away, you go high up, you reflect. It's a moment to be away from the problem, a bit distanced from it. It's time to see ourselves outside of the problem, and that's what he's doing here in chapter 2, 1. No longer defining himself by the problem. The everyday press of life's activities can be distanced from us for a moment. That's what he's doing. He'd been down the valley with his problem. Now he wants to go up on the mountain and look down at the problem, try to solve it, see it a bit from God's perspective. Go away for a while, meet with God to detach from the difficulty. If you remember in John, I'm sorry, Mark 6, 15, in a difficult time, it was difficult because they had just murdered John the Baptist. And after a very busy time of missionary work, Jesus said this to his disciples, Mark 6:15, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Mark then wrote this, listen. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Sometimes we have to detach from the problem. That's what Habakkuk is doing here in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, famous Reformed preacher in previous centuries, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what so frequently happens is this. We go on our knees, we tell God about the timing and the thing that's worrying us, and we tell him that we can't resolve the difficulty ourselves. We can't understand, and we ask him to deal with it and show us his way. And the moment we stand up from our knees, we begin to worry about the problem try to solve it ourselves. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know all of us do this. So we have a problem. Can't figure it out. Leave it with God. Leaving it with God includes not brooding about it anymore, not talking about it anymore necessarily. Go up to the tower and look and reflect. Step two. How do you do this? How do you go up to the tower and leave the problem? How do you detach from the problem? Step two, expect God's answer. Expect God's answer. Habakkuk is not forgetting about the problem entirely. The Babylonians are coming. <laughs> he can't entirely forget that, that that is the reality in which he lives. Even in the tower, he can see the landscape. Maybe they're already arriving. Maybe they're not yet arriving, and he's reflecting on this is all going to be burned up soon. Detached for the problem, but still live in the world where the problem exists. But our role has shifted when we enter the tower. Our role is to watch. Not to take action, but to watch. Our role is to wait for God's answer. How will God answer? How will God speak to the problem? God speaks through his word. We, we know how this happens. We have a problem that we've been unable to solve every day. When you read your Bible, all of a sudden this passage jumps off the page that you smacks you in the face. Whoa! I wasn't thinking of that. That's exactly the answer. God has spoken through his word. He does that individually. He does that collectively. He does that through public and private ministry of his word. Expect God's answer. Third step, how do you detach from the problem? How do you go into the tower, as it were? Be persistent in expecting God's answer. Notice the wording of chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk 2, 1. I will take my stand 
and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he'll say to me. He doesn't say, I'll be up there for, for a good 20 minutes. He's going to station himself there. This is now my new position. I'm going to stay here, persevere, keep at it, be tenacious. We don't live as believers by figuring stuff out. Nor do we live by escapism. Go into the tower and forget about it. That, that's not what he's recommending, nor am I. We don't go fishing and hunting, take two uh, glasses of wine, go on a shopping trip. We don't live by being angry all through the waiting time. We don't live by a series of attempts to fix stuff, trial and error. Let me try this. Let me try that. Let me try this. We live by faith. That's what he said in verse 4, which we're getting to, right? That's the, the thing he's driving us towards, trusting in God. God told Habakkuk to write this down for us so that we, the rest of God's people down through the centuries, would be able to follow the same good pathway. God himself is calling us to live by faith. Go into the tower, detach yourself from the problem, realize the God in whose hands your problem is. So chapter 2 now, verses 2 through 5, God says his answer to Habakkuk. The first question is, how can you deal with sin in your people? I'm going to blow it up by Babylon. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I'm going to send Babylon to invade and and massacre the place. Uh, Not the answer I was expecting, so Habakkuk gives his next question, like, how could you use wicked people to do your work on your people? And so then the answer comes here in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, I'm going to punish the wicked and save the righteous. So verse 2, God answered Habakkuk. He told Habakkuk to write it down. Now we're in verse 2. He's in the tower, right? So now verse 2, the Lord answered me. And the rest of chapter 2 is that, God answering Habakkuk. The Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. That's you. God told Habakkuk to write it down for you and me. Thank God he did. Verse 3, if the answer seems slow from God, wait for it. Verse 4 is the central verse of the whole book. Verse 4 is God's answer to Habakkuk's questions. What is a believer's life like during a time of crisis? The believer's life is filled with trusting God. What's a believer's life like in a time of crisis? A believer's heart, mind, life is filled with trusting God. What a great verse. That's another one for your refrigerator, for your screensaver. What a great verse. One of the brightest spots in the Bible, honestly. I don't believe in a canon within a canon. There's some things more important than others. No, all of it is God's word. But we're saying that this phrase, verse 4 of Habakkuk 2, is picked up twice by the Apostle Paul and once by the author of Hebrews. And I'd like to cover those briefly right now. What an impact this verse had on Martin Luther, key figure in the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s in Europe. What an impact the Reformation had on the whole world since then. You have been directly influenced and helped by the Reformation, whether you realize it or not. Being here in our church, you certainly realize it because we talk about it. But Luther was feeling the burden of his own sin. He knew he was wrong. He was convicted about his sin. He didn't know how to free his mind and heart from the guilt. I done goofed. I did wrong. Yes, what do I do? How do I clear this? He saw God's standard clearly. He knew he didn't measure up, but he stopped there. He could, what do you do next? 
He admitted that he started to hate God because God is so righteous. His law is so holy. I can't live up to what I'm supposed to. He felt condemned by the Ten Commandments and other places. He trembled miserably. He became a monk in order to study the Bible and pray and try to figure this out and make it right. Luther came upon these words of Scripture. The righteous shall live by his faith. Change his life. There's power in every verse. There's power in every word. I'm just telling you what God has done using this sentence that we're studying in the book of Habakkuk. Luther began to realize there's a different way of being right with God than by more fasting, more self-denying, more praying, more changing what he needs to change, more helping the poor, more doing other good works. There's a whole other way to get right with God entirely. It's by faith. It's by believing, not by doing. So when this verse is quoted in Romans 1.17, it's in a discussion about the righteous person. When this verse is quoted in Galatians 3.11, it's a discussion about the Christian life. And when this verse is quoted in Hebrews 10.38, it's a discussion about faith itself. So I'll go over those three briefly. So first, we get God's interpretations of this golden phrase, right? Because God wrote the New Testament. So everything we're about to study, God also wrote as interpreting what he said through Habakkuk in chapter 2.4. So first, Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2.4. We're sinners, not righteous people. This bothered Luther. How can a sinner then obtain righteousness? How do you make it right? How do you erase the mess? How do you clear the stain? No one's capable by our own efforts. So how do we get it? How do we get righteousness with God? Righteousness is God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. Romans explains. The righteous person is the person who has stopped trying in his own efforts to become good enough and instead has turned to Jesus, the free gift of God's righteousness being counted as our own righteousness and receives that by the conduit of faith, the vehicle of faith. That's the very essence of being a Christian. Called by Christ's name now, Christ's child, Christian, and viewed now from heaven, views us as having a right record of behavior instead of viewed as having our bad record of behavior, which we actually performed. Being right with God is not by our actions. It's by our inaction, by our receiving passively. So God has done what we could not do. We simply open our hands to receive God's gift. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Read this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is... Now here we get a definition of the gospel. It is... Should have put this on the quiz. What's the gospel? What is the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's your quote. Righteous shall live by faith comes from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. How do we receive God's gift? By faith, by trusting in him. What is faith? And how does that get us the righteousness of God? The book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11, faith is trusting God and following that up with actions that line up with that trust. So in the long list of heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, each person that's listed, quite a few Old Testament characters are listed, you might remember from Hebrews 11, each person has done something to express their beliefs, to express their faith, That's the things that are being pinpointed one after the other, bullet points, as it were. This person expressed their faith. This person expressed their trusting. This person expressed their beliefs. 
right? Abel trusted God and offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, Hebrews 11.4. That's an action expressing his faith. Enoch trusted God and pleased God with his long and faithful life, Hebrews 11.5. Noah trusted God and constructed an ark for the saving of his household, Hebrews 11.7. That is seen as an act of faith. He built a whole ark because he believed God. A, God was coming in judgment. B, God was going to rescue him if he's in that ark. Those are the things he believed. So believing that, he took however long it took to build an entire ark, right? So you get the idea. The whole heroes of faith list in Hebrews 11. Trusting God is receiving his gifts, but trusting God always includes taking actions that are consistent with our trusting. So faith means trusting in Jesus. It also means turning from our wrongdoing in order to follow Jesus with our behavior. So here's the quote. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39, just before the Hebrews 11 chapter, okay? Of the heroes of faith. Hebrews 10, 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and persevere in their souls. And with that intro, he gives the whole list of Hebrews 11. It's all built on the concept of the righteous living by faith. The very core verse of Hebrew, Habakkuk 2, 4, the, the core verse of Habakkuk. Trusting in God includes a commitment to act like it. We're supposed to act like we have a great big God. Sovereign, holy, caring, loving, faithful. We're supposed to act like it. We don't initiate the Christian life by faith, but then carry on a different operating procedure that we really just rely on ourselves day by day as Christians. You know, faith is really just your entrance key. And once you're in, you really better take care of yourself. Like, what? No. No. We do not draw on faith from time to time as needed. No. The righteous live their whole lives by faith. Everything. Start to finish, top to bottom, every day. This day is too much for you. That's the truth. And so trusting in God will get you through this day. That's the truth. To live continuously in the very essential aspect of your core being, always trusting the Lord God. That's pretty important. That's what he's getting at in Habakkuk, is being unpacked by these three quotations in the New Testament. We're ever operating on this core idea of trusting God, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as long as our lives last. That's what we're all about. We're believers after all, right? The third time this phrase is quoted in the New Testament, Galatians 3.11, Paul had traveled to an area called Galatia, where the name of the book comes from that, Galatians. He was a missionary there. So he's teaching the people in that area the truths about God. That's what missionaries do. What does God say to you? The apostle shared how Jesus had died for them, and meaning the cleansing of sin, and Jesus rose again, and they could have newness of life in Jesus. Later, Paul left to share the gospel in other places, missionary elsewhere. He's no longer in Galatia, right? So he hears over here that the people back in Galatia who were taught those truths by him and believed those truths when he was there now no longer are living by those truths, okay? So they started to live by Jewish laws, trying to stay right with God according to their own obedience. They thought faith was a starting point but now they add to that with their own obedience, and they were chastising each other, saying, you better get your life in order. You better get your life in order. And they're all trying to figure this out, right? So Paul over here on a new place, 
writes a letter back to Galatia saying, let me just straighten you out. The whole letter of Galatians is to warn how they had fallen into a different religion. They lost it. You don't understand the basics of Christianity. Everything I taught you, you lost it. You have a false religion now that will enslave you. It's important enough for me to stop what I'm doing over here and write you a book to remind you because I can't get there right now. Please read this book. In that, Paul turned to Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and challenged their living by the law instead of living by faith. So here it is, Galatians 3, 10 and 11. Listen. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, quote, what does he say, class? The righteous shall live by faith, end quote. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. It's the one core thing the people in Galatia needed to be reminded of. The core of Christianity. As far as being spiritually alive, the only way is to be a person living by faith. A living person living by faith in Jesus. No matter what happens around us, no matter how astray we go or how well we're doing, trusting in God is the only thing that keeps us alive spiritually and safe spiritually. God keeps us safe not just the first moment that we entrusted him with our souls, but rather he keeps us continuously safe every moment throughout our lives. The whole entirety of our lives is to be lived in this trusting manner. However, notice something important about this bright verse, Hebrews, uh, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The trusting ones are addressed in Hebrews 2.4. But who else are addressed in our verse? Hebrews, Habakkuk 2.4. Who else is addressed? The wicked ones. Now let me read the entire verse. We've quoted those little, that little quote, but in context, what does it actually say? The whole verse. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. He's talking about two sets of people, the wicked and the righteous. The wicked are puffed up. What does that mean? Pride. And the righteous only live by faith. They're righteous not because of their own deeds. They're righteous because by faith they trust and God has given them the righteousness that they need. And they're no longer puffed up. They know they don't have anything. It's the humble who live by faith. It's the prideful who live by action and works. All right? So then now he breaks out into this list of of visions. So next on your handout is the poem, chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, flows out of this truth. First, verses 6 through 8, those who were plundering others will themselves be plundered. God's going to turn this back around on the wicked, right? Those who were shaming others will be conquered and shamed. The um, people who are build, building, undoing other people's building, their building will be undone. Those who are shaming others or shameless will be shamed, and the idolaters will be silenced. All right, so all of these sections, these five woes, if you're looking at your English Bible, you'll see the word woe at the beginning of verse 6, at the beginning of verse 9, at the beginning of verse 12, first word in verse 15, first word in verse 19, woe, five woes. Woe to you, right? Sounds like Jesus saying to the Pharisees, woe to you. The whole point is the wicked are not going to prosper. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I got this. They're not going to get away with it. That's the big point, which is on your handout, this thing off to the right that I made. Lesson, the wicked will not always prosper. So verses you know, six, 6 through 8, a person trusts 
God doesn't need to crave more and more of this world's supplies. Um, all right, let me see here. I don't think I can unpack each of these right now and still be uh, still get to the conclusion. I want to I want to make sure to reach the end of our study today. Um, all right, I've I've summarized those. You get the idea. The wicked are not going to prosper. Whatever they were doing turns back on them. Uh, verses two through two through twenty. All right, let me uh, let me pick up with. Let me pick up with verse 20 because, you know, we often use that for a call to worship for, for ourselves. So I'd like you to see that in context. So verses 19 and 20. Let's skip to verses 19 and 20. This is an overview. You got, got the idea of chapter 2. So um, verses 19 and 20, we come back to the first commandment, right? No, have no other gods before me. Basic old-fashioned idolatry is part of what they were um, mixed up in. Look at verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Like a, a little wooden statue, right? worshiping a literal idol. Woe to him who says to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach, in other words, this little wooden statue, this little stone statue, can it teach you what you need to know about life? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. And that's the context for God to say, this call to worship that we use, verse 20. But, right, in contrast to those false idols, but the Lord is in his holy temple very much exists, and he's in there. Your false idols don't actually exist. He actually does. He's the one living and true God, right? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Will you stop talking, right, about your false idols? Just quiet already. The Lord is in his temple. So I want to unpack this a little bit, right? Um, Habakkuk has a message for people interested in uh, idolatry, interested in what things flow out of that. For example, the occult and witchcraft. These are the things he mentioned throughout chapter 2. So in the presence of the Lord God, let everyone everywhere shut your mouths and put a stop to all your incantations, which are, are prayers to false gods and wicked, like dark things, prayers to gods that don't exist. Pipe down, put a lid on it, hush, button your lip, don't say anymore. God alone exists, and he's heard everything that anyone ever has ever said. You're talking to demons, you're talking to witches, you're, you're talking to supposedly dead people, whatever these incantations. God has heard all of that. So before you add more to your resume of difficulties that you're going to have to face God for, stop it already. Everybody just be quiet. Everybody keep silence before him. There's one living and true God. You are going to give account to him, so just stop already. You see the context, verses 19 and 20 here? And it makes you wonder... Why do people chase these things anyway? Like even our day, like modern, sophisticated people, right? Scientific, we have all of this information, and people are still reading the horoscopes. What is up with that? Right? Because the occult, dark, um, dark religion and astrology offers them religion without responsibility. When's the last time you had somebody in a horoscope say that you should really be ashamed of yourself for these things that you've done? Turn around, knock it off, don't do this anymore. None of them confront us with wrongdoing. None of them make a person feel guilty. The stars and the planets always seem to be telling us exactly what we want to hear, that we should do whatever we want to do. All the stars and planets line up to tell us that. That's exactly what people do it for. Does that make sense? 
Astrology also offers revelation without the Bible. Oh, we have messages from out there. Does it line up with the Bible? Does, is there anything that's consistent there? Oh, don't worry about the Bible. We have messages from out there, right? There's a pretended world from beyond this life, and galaxies, and they're sending us messages. They launched the message how many years ago, and it's just now arriving. But that message... You know, conveniently doesn't mention sin, death, judgment, holiness. Only the Bible seems to mention those things. Listen for the galaxies to send a message like the Bible sends, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, no one may re- that each one may receive what is due for his, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That message never seems to come from the other galaxies, does it? Another reason people go into the occult and dark religion and astrology is because it offers salvation without a real savior. That's exactly what they want. Everyone talks about the stars aligning in love, the stars aligning in their favor. I can't believe I just got this job. I can't believe I just bought this car. I can't believe that these good things are all just happening. My team won. My fantasy team's doing well. All these things mean that there's a mysterious sense of peace and acceptance and love that's coming to me from out there. Who are you to question that all this peace and love is coming to me from out there? But none of it's true. Where are they getting this from? What are you basing it on? The God who created the planets still guides every planet, every star, the sun and the moon. The same God who guides history and has orchestrated every moment of your life and continues to do so every square inch of the planet. So if there's going to be peace and acceptance and love in the world, then it has to come through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came at Christmas, right? He is peace and love. Now, how about you consider the Christmas story? What was it that guided the wise men to Jesus? Hmm. Matthew 2, 1-2. to Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his what? His star. When it rose and have come to worship him. That's not it. That's not all. Matthew 2, verse 9. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Matthew 2, 9 through 11. Astrology offers salvation without a real savior, but it's a lie. There's no salvation in you interpreting the stars and planets however you'd like to interpret the stars and planets. It's a lie. You're being deluded. Christianity alone offers salvation by the only real savior, and it's truth. In him, we have salvation. Outside of him, we don't. That's truth. So where do you turn for strength and security in your life. That's what the book of Habakkuk is asking us. If you want to seek to apply this to us now. Do you turn to money? Oh, I can just solve this if I pay more. I get the right people to hire and do the right things. Um, you turn to people? There's a certain person you always turn to, your spouse, your family, your friend, your pastor, will somehow help you to get through this and get by. You've got to rely on that person. Or you rely on success. 
you need to feel that you're good at something. What's my superpower? I just want to be the best at something. Just tell me which that is, and I'll be happy. I just want some success somewhere. If I'm just low-grade, average, not really the greatest at anything, then I don't feel secure. I need to success for me. Or is it fame? You only find solace in your future legacy. How people are going to remember you, you're building that now. You want people to remember you this way, and so that's why you're doing these things. You find security in that. Or maybe you just trust in your own self. You're strong. You're one of those tough persons, right? Your own strength. You're going to tough it out. You've got skills. You've got strengths. You can fix this. You can outlast. You've been made in the image of God. You're destined to follow God and to fellowship with God. And without God, you're not going to have peace and security that you're searching. Is in the secret place of your own heart what you're really searching for is exactly what Habakkuk's talking about here. You're supposed to turn to God and God alone for your strength and your security in your life. If you don't have God as your rock, as he said earlier, there'll always be something missing for you in your life, and you're going to fret about it. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to turn to God and God alone, or are you going to follow various paths in this world and be left empty and frustrated perpetually? How about following the God who made this world, all those stars, who also calls us to trust in him alone and discover that he's worthy of our confidence because he always comes through for his people? That's the message here. Joshua was faced with that choice, and in Joshua 24, 15, he famously said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Habakkuk's saying. Joshua says it, Habakkuk says it, Martin Luther said it. Though the whole world is falling apart, the righteous will live by trusting in the Lord God alone, true faith in him. It's the only way to make it through a crumbling world. Now that brings us to chapter 3. i got 12 minutes. It's perfect. i got to go to chapter 3. Ready? Chapter 3 is a prayer. It's one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. Why don't we study this more? It's amazing. Maybe you should ask for a sermon on this, but be careful what you ask for, because asking for a sermon on Habakkuk 3 means you're asking for a sermon series on an entire book of Habakkuk, because only that way can you properly understand this after you've covered chapters 1 and 2, and conveniently, that's right where you are. You have just covered chapters 1 and 2, so you're set to understand this prayer Remember how chapter 1 is Habakkuk asking God why he's so slow in answering his prayer for spiritual awakening? Remember God's answer? Yeah, I'll send the Babylon army to demolish you. Remember how Habakkuk was asking God, then how could you do such a thing? Remember God's answer? The righteous live by trusting in God. Remember how the rest of chapter 2 was God describing visions of woe, how the Babylonians will be punished? So how do you apply that to you? How do you pray knowing these things? Maybe you're going through a hard time right now. Maybe things are really bad for a friend of yours and you're trying to counsel that person. Maybe, to be blunt, the future could become much worse than how it is now. But the righteous live by trusting in the Lord and God always comes through for us, right? How does that influence our prayers? Remember how chapter 2 ends with God in his temple calling the earth to be silent? Well, all that's left is for Habakkuk to express his trust in the Lord God. So chapter 3, 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And the, the prayer here is so carefully structured and formal in its composition that it's clear that Habakkuk took the Lord's answer from chapter 2, 2 to chapter 2, 20, that whole answer from the Lord, and he studied it a lot, thoroughly. 
about what God had said to him. And later, I'm thinking much later, he came and when he was ready, wrote chapter 3. Like I said, this could have been as long as Jeremiah. But he condensed it all. You just got to unpack it all. When he's ready, he composed this prayer as a very highly structured poem. It's beautiful in its expression of Habakkuk's heart and what he wanted to say back to the Lord God. Think about Mary in the Christmas story, her visit with Elizabeth that we'll study this morning, how the Holy Spirit spoke to her through Elizabeth, and then Mary collected herself and apparently studied Hannah's prayer too in 1 Samuel 2. And then Mary composed what we now know of as Mary's song, or the Magnificat, from which we get our word magnifier, in which she's clearly exalting the Lord God and expressing her heart's trust in God. So same thing here, carefully writing down an incredible prayer. It has three parts, verses 1 and 2, the prophet praying for God's help in upcoming troubled times. Section 3, verses 3 to 15 or 3 to 16, a reminder to anyone who's bewildered, God is a warrior who has previously won big. And third, the last section, the prophet learned to live by faith and to give hopeful praise. So those last verses are his personal testimony of trusting in God during hard times. So it begins with this prayer, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What makes a good prayer? Being humble. Remember that we don't deserve to enter God's presence. We don't deserve for God to hear us. Like chapter 220 says, let all the earth be silent for him. We should really just stay silent. Who are we to start praying? Who do we to start speaking to God, right? That's our position. That's what we deserve. So remembering that and bringing that sort of humility into our prayer is essential. I don't deserve to speak to you, Lord God. I should just really just keep my peace, keep my silence. So thank you, Lord God, for hearing me through Jesus Christ, giving me the privilege of prayer at all. Compare that to chapter 1, verse 2. Remember how Habakkuk prayed earlier? Habakkuk 1, 2. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Does that sound like the same guy? He's been humbled. How long, oh Lord, I'm going to pray and you're not answering. What's going on up there? And now he's saying, oh Lord, I don't even deserve to be in your presence. What happened to Habakkuk? God gave him a precious gift of humility. How does that happen? God took his mind off himself. God took his mind off the Israelites. God took his mind off the Babylonians. God put Habakkuk's mind on God and God alone. And when your mind is on God and God alone, in his holy temple, first you're silent for a while and you reflect. And then you pray to him in a whole new way. That's the gift of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. We focus on the holiness of God. We focus on the justice of God. We focus on the mercy of God. We focus on the faithfulness of God. Yeah, there's a background. Sin in the world. Sin in the church. Yeah. Sin in Israel. Sin in the Babylonians. Yeah. But when we focus on the Lord God in his holy temple, it all goes into perspective. Looking at Israel, he's troubled. Looking at Babylon coming, he's really troubled. Looking at God, he's at peace. He forgets all about Israel and Babylon. Probably forgot to eat lunch. (laughs) He's just focused on God. If you pray that way, you'll forget about the church, you'll forget about the world, you'll forget about your problems. 
concerned about the glory of God, nothing else. May that be the gift you give for Christmas, Lord God. The distinction between the sins of Israel and the sins of Babylon has become relatively unimportant when you're talking about the holy God in his temple. Yeah, Babylonians, bad sinners, but we are not so keen ourselves. <laughs> Everybody's a sinner. Romans 3.23 comes back to you, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's a wrong perspective for prayer. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than the Babylonians. You should listen to me because I'm really pretty good year-round, in fact. I make donations to church. I, I serve you in these ways. I'm good to my family. And those prayers are wrong because that perspective is wrong. Who do we think we are that we've done these things and we've avoided these things? So therefore, we can demand an answer from God? But if we learn from Habakkuk 3, we pray very differently. We pray like this, Lord, it's by your grace I'm even led to pray. Only on the basis of your grace can I come to you at all. I don't deserve anything. I come to you in prayer because you invited me to come to you in prayer. You instructed me and commanded me to come to you in prayer. And I now lay these petitions before you because I'm helpless, and hopeless without you. Now that's the start of a biblical prayer. It comes from a biblical perspective and a heart that's getting right with God. And God delights to answer that more and more. If we approach God believing that we're better than others, we're making the mistake that believes God owes us and we've earned it. And that's a religion of works. And we live in a religion of grace. Christianity is grace. We all need that humility. So I think in the Reformed Church we can pray with pride. Lord, the liberal church has left behind the confessions of the church. For example, the virgin birth. They don't even believe, the virgin, oh, what are they doing for Christmas? Because they don't even believe in the virgin birth. But we do. Isn't that good that we believe in the virgin birth still after all these years? We, the faithful reformed church, right? We approach God on the basis of the distinction between us and the liberal church, and we're better than them. So based on us being better than them, Lord, bless us. Oh, have we lost it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Back to basics. Chapter 1, Habakkuk said, O Lord, how long? Chapter 3, 2, he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Adoring God. More our requests will change. Praying for his work. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. You want to send the Babylonians and wreck the place? Send the Babylonians and wreck the place. Because you know what? You can build it all back up again. Do whatever you do, because I'm with you, Lord God. You see how the difference is? He's got his heart right. He's got his prayers right. He, he's not trying to uh, affect a certain outcome. Don't let the righteous live by their deeds. Let the righteous live by faith in God and his work. Our God is a God of mercy. He delights to, to do that. Either we're puffed up, chapter 2, verse 4, or we're living by faith, chapter 2, verse 4. You've got two different categories of persons there, right? So then the middle section, chapter 3 through 16, or 3 through 15, Habakkuk's afraid. So he's writing to us when we're afraid. Uh, verse 3, God came. Verse 4, God was bright and powerful. Verse 5, God brought justice and pestilence and plague. Verse 6, God stood and measured the earth and shook the nations. Verse 7, the nations were in affliction and trembling. Verse 8, God rode, as it were, on horses and chariots. Verse 9, God used a bow and called for many arrows. Verse 10, even the mountains were in pain to see this. Verse 10, sun and moon stood still to see the arrows and spears of God. Verse 12, God marched in fury and thrust the nations in anger. 
Verse 13, notice what is the intent of God in doing all of this. He went out for the salvation of his people and crushed the head of the wicked. Verse 14, his arrows pierced. Verse 15, he trampled the sea with horses and mighty waters. Listen to verse 16. I'll read the whole of verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is Habakkuk's prayer. He's scared, but he's able to pray to the God in whom he trusts, despite his fear. He's hearing from the God about the invasion. King David had courage and fought many enemies, but David always wrote about his fear in the Psalms. Apostle Paul had great courage, faced many hardships, beatings, imprisonments, but there's times that he was so fearful, he wrote that he was despairing even of life itself. Habakkuk, David, Paul, all tell us about their faith, but they struggle with great fear. Face your fear. Be, a, be honest about that. How do you deal with your fears? Give it over to God, your weakness, his victory. But the book doesn't end in fear. These last verses, the very last section now, the prophet learned to live by faith. Here's bad reactions to fear. Give up. Well, this is going to happen. I can't do anything about it. Give up. That's a bad reaction. Another bad one is to not think about it. I'm just going to shut down. I'm not going to Watch the news, I'll keep my mind occupied and busy with other things, I'll take up new hobbies and, and not, not pay attention at all. Not face reality. A bad reaction to fear. A third bad reaction to fear is be tough. Rely on your own courage. Pull yourself together, chin up, face it. Pep talk to yourself, rally yourself. Bad reaction to fear. The only good reaction to fear, the Christian reaction to fear, rejoice in the God of salvation. How do you rejoice in difficulty? Look at verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verses 17 and 18. And we rely on God, placing a confidence in the God who takes actions on our behalf. This isn't emotion. This isn't even reason. It's believing what we know to be true. This is knowledge and trusting in that knowledge. It's faith in the God whom we know. Knowing God leads to rejoicing in him, and that joy overcomes our fear. So Christianity is facts. It's truth. It's knowledge. It's a report. The gospel is good news. The news that Jesus came. The news that Jesus died and rose. The news that he's coming again. It's real and true. So we actually have a God in whom we can rejoice, even in the worst of times. So... The last verse, <clears throat> I mean, if you ask yourself, what if, what if, what if the fig tree doesn't blossom? Put that in your terms for your problem, right? What if the vines bear no fruit anymore? What if the entire olive crop fails? And maybe you realize how dependent they were in those days on the olive crop. What if there are no flocks, no herds, no cattle, no farm? What if, fill in the blank here with your worst nightmare, what if? The fact is that you have a God who's greater than that. Fill in the blank, what if? Rejoice. Verse 19, the last verse. God the Lord is my strength. This is a testimony of Habakkuk. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So if there's a difficult high hiking place, you can't get to it, but deer can, God makes you like a deer, and then you can go to those places that you couldn't ordinarily go to. It's an image, right? It's just simply a metaphor to show God is causing me to be victorious and celebrating living on top of the world, even though this problem has got me whacked out. I'm rejoicing in him. 
And that last note tells us that it's meant to be sung, like the Psalms, where these little markers to the choir master, stringed instruments, sounds just like the Psalms, doesn't it? It means not only are we victorious, we can sing our victory. We sing out our trust in God, despite our really difficult situations. God's greater than our worst fears. God is our strength. Can you say that to yourself? Hey, self, repeat after me. God is my strength. I'm in good company. Habakkuk, Paul, (laughs) the other apostles, Martin Luther, the other reformers. God is my strength. I know God. That's a fact. God is faithful to his people, and that's a fact. I'm God's child, and that's a fact. God will give me strength, and I really need that when I get concerned and nervous about all this stuff. The fact is that no matter who's threatening me, God is greater. We give God hopeful praise, and we give God our rejoicing hope. Book of Habakkuk. We're taking the next two weeks off for uh, Christmas and New Year's, and we'll pick up, Lord willing, January 7, 2022.